Boy, it is so good to worship, yeah? yeah? So good to worship Jesus. You know, we all can't sing, but we're all made to be worshipers. Do you know that? That's why I'm thankful Scripture says make a joyful noise, because noise is about all I make, but, but it's so good to know that, you know, we expend energy for the Lord because the Lord gives us the energy, and so we do it as an act of praise and thanks, and I'm excited you guys are willing to worship and give that to the Lord. Good time. Hey, want to uh, just draw your attention to a few things. First of all, we've announced it last week. I want to announce it again this week that, um, that uh, for our church news, we are moving everybody online as much as possible. So if you'd like to know what's going on here at North Point, make sure that you go to northpoint.org front slash now. Check out, this is, this is actually a, a part of our site that is broken up in the purposes that we live for, worship and evangelism and discipleship and ministry and koinonia, fellowship, the purposes that we talk about all the time around here. But under those purposes, you're going to see various things that are coming up right now at North Point, stuff for men, stuff for women, stuff for kids, ways to be involved. By the way, speaking of kids, thank you, all of you for your generosity in giving, your faithful tithes and offerings, your, your gift of time and energy, because we just finished, as you know, Extreme Days, and it was awesome. By the way, a lot of you volunteered. Let's hear it for all those that volunteered in Extreme Days. Um, man, if you got the taste for loving kids and planting seeds in the lives of kids, I encourage you to, to definitely be a part of our kids' team at, at our 9 or 11 o'clock uh, service. We'd love to see involved with our MP kids on a regular basis. But this is where you go to hear about the news. And then also, you remember Pastor Kevin last week just drew your attention to the, our connection card that you will find in your notes today. If you have a prayer need, make sure that you're constantly filling this out and letting us know. We pray over every request. The pastors gather weekly for a prayer meeting. We read through all of these. We're praying for you regularly. Even if you never heard from us, we're whispering your name and we're praying to God and calling on God together for you. So let us know. And if you're making a commitment to Jesus Christ, or you're renewing a commitment, or you want to be baptized, or you want to go through one of our core classes because you want to kick your discipleship, or becoming like Jesus into high gear, this is how you let us know. So make sure you use this. It was cool last week because Pastor Kevin pointed this out, and we were drawing two Traegers. We had a bunch of men fill these out. And, and it's cool to have guys actually expend the energy. You know, I'll be honest, statistically, we typically have more ladies fill this out than men. Men, shame on you. But last week... Last week, the guys, they even put in a prayer request. Most of them said, pray I win the Traeger. <laughs> no, there, there were other requests too on top of that. But, but anyway, make sure that you use that. Um, because, and then make sure you grab your notes today because, uh, guys, we are kicking off a series of uh, messages that we're excited about over the next several weeks that we're calling Creed or the Creed. And uh, what we want to do is we want to talk to you about what we're calling a vocabulary of faith. Now, you'll notice in your notes, there is the Apostles' Creed right here. Now, why did we include that? Because the Apostles' Creed is the earliest creed of the Christian faith. It's the earliest creed, that is, that we know of. Now, this goes back, I mean, we're talking about probably 400 A.D., 3-something A.D., when this creed was first formalized that we begin to see this. But the reason this is significant is because you have to understand, this is before the, the, the uh, invention of the printing press. 
This is before there were systematic theology books or any kind of books. This is when, uh, you know, Scripture was being transcribed on papyrus or some sort of vallum or, um, or parchment, and only the highest class of bishop or priest could actually read the words of God. It was passed out. So the average person... They were just trying to understand what it is that Christians believed, and so they had to memorize what we call today creeds. And it was through the memorization that they remembered, what is the essential truth? That is, what is it that Christians actually believe? What are the truths that we hold to? Because truth for the Christian has always been the guiding principle. We want to go back to God's words to see how the human person should live. Friends, listen. We don't lack the printing press and we don't lack information today, but because there is so much information and not all of it is good information, if there were ever a day that we needed to know truth, that day is today. Do you think so? We've got to be able to go back to some of the basics to remember what are the guiding principles that direct my life and chart the course because I hear so many things. And I'm going to say this. There's a lot of things that we hear And it doesn't relate to the Bible necessarily, but it's biblical truth that should guide or teach us how to respond to everything that we hear. Everything should go back to doctrine. Everything should go back to truth. So what we're going to do is we're going to be taking a look at various phrases within the creed and looking at various theological concepts, and we're going to help to understand it by looking at the Scripture. Today, I want to look at the very beginning of this creed where it talks about God, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, that God is the creator, and we'll see what we can tell from the Scriptures about what it teaches. By the way, I'd like to teach on this what the Bible means about this is compared to other thought systems that are out there today or have been out there. And then, after we do that, I want to talk to you about the, how we live out the biblical teaching of creation. So, what is the teaching and how do we practice it or live it out? So, let's begin with what is the teaching? Now, I almost want to say as a word before, whenever we talk about the theology of creation... Whenever we talk about the doctrine of creation from a Christian worldview, what we mean is, or what we're not talking about is, how things were created. If you want to talk about how things are created, you're not going to go to theology. You're going to go to the discipline of what? Anybody know? Science. The, theology, the, the, the discipline of science has to do with how things were created. I'm going to tell you right now, Scripture does not concern itself with the how. Scripture concerns itself with the who and the why. Now, a lot of people get confused by that because they say, well, science contradicts faith and faith contradicts science. And I'm going to say, no, it doesn't, not at all. In fact, the Bible encourages you to study his creation, to look and understand it, But that's not what the theology of creation is about because the Hebrews didn't care about that. Hebrews didn't care about the how, they cared about the who. And so they wrote about the who or why things were created, who done it. So I want for you to write this down. It's almost a word before. Just if you're taking notes, take down this word. The biblical doctrine of creation is concerned with meaning over method. It's concerned with meaning. Again, not the how, but the why and the who. So let me just illustrate this for you. Let's say that you and I were trying to figure out why would Shane boil a pot of water for a cup of tea? You all see a tea kettle here, and somebody asks, well, what's the origin of the tea? Why? 
Why did it come about? Now, I could say to you, oh, well, there's a simple answer to that. See, the HTO molecules heated up and they started bouncing off each other as I put it over an open flame and now I have tea because the water boiled and I put a bag in it and that's how it was made. I could say that to you and let me ask you, would that be a perfectly legitimate answer? Well, it would if you're talking about the how. But I also could say to you, well, we have tea today because I wanted it. (laughs) And would that be a legitimate answer? Sure it would. Are both equal answers? Sure they are. But both are speaking to it from different points of view. Now, when it comes to the scripture, people confuse this all the time. We're answering different questions. So when I talk to you today about the doctrine of creation, I'm going to talk to you about the meaning of creation, the who done it, the why he done it, especially as opposed to other worldviews. Does that make sense? All right, so here we go. Let's talk about this for just a minute. What is unique about the doctrine of creation? Write down four things real fast. We're going to go through them as quickly as we can. Number one is this. When you look at the scripture, you see that creation is real as opposed to the teaching of pantheism. It's real as opposed to the teaching of pantheism. Just fill that out, whether you're online or in here or somewhere watching. What do I mean? I mean that Eastern religions always taught that the created world was just an illusion. In fact, Eastern religions taught that there was no creation and there was no time in which God actually created. Rather, the physical world and the laws of the physical world are just an illusion. In fact, Eastern religions say that we all live in the, in the, all, the great all soul. Now, some of you are thinking, what does this have to do with me? Well, a lot of our thinking in America today, believe it or not, comes from these thought concepts of Eastern religion or pantheism. For example, how many of you remember that movie from the 90s? It was a blockbuster called The Matrix. Anybody remember that? The Matrix, the movie, the premise of the movie comes from this idea of pantheism. That is, by the way, this movie, the very first movie, if you've not seen this, was awesome. The second and third movie stunk really bad. But the first movie, just just awesome. And the idea in this movie of the Matrix, they don't call it the great all soul, they call it the Matrix, but the idea is this. If you can transcend the world you live in, if you can transcend the physical, if you can penetrate the illusion, man, you'll be operating on a whole new level. You can fly, you can dodge bullets. If you could just, you could, there's any, you can do anything. If you could just transcend what's there. And some of you are thinking, well, it's kind of funny, but I'm telling you, these ideas, as I've said, have crept into American thinking. For example, it's common in American thinking today to think that you have the power in yourself to transcend your reality. Think about vision boards, for example. Or think about the power of positive thinking. These come from a, from a pantheistic worldview, that you have a power in and of yourself to transcend the reality of what's there. And you can vision it into existence. I'm telling you, even today, in Christian churches, especially in North America, this is a North American phenomena, it is so common that you can name it or you can claim it and you can speak it into existence. You have the power to do that. Now, they call it faith, but it's syncretism. It's a pantheistic worldview that there is a power in you, and you're just going to faith it in reality. And what this idea says is, listen, physical reality doesn't matter, or it's less important. The physical may even be evil, 
But what matters, guys, is your feelings in here. What matters is how much you really believe in the power of your positivity. By the way, you don't think this is true? I'm telling you that all of our gender discussions right now about identity are centered around this thing. What matters is what's in here and what you think. That physical matter matters far less. And what you feel helps you to transcend the reality and whatever you think you are, you are. Now, I'm telling you, the biblical doctrine of creation says, no, 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 God made matter. It matters. God made the reality that we live in. And by the way, physical truth is truth. And he made it with purpose. Creation is real. It is concrete. It is physical. Listen to me. You don't transcend truth. You don't speak your truth. You don't speak your reality. You are bound to it. There is a reality that you and I are bound to and we must submit to. That makes us humble. If you don't believe you're bound to reality, I would challenge you. Just go test gravity and see how that works out. The fact is, is there is a physical reality you and I have to bend to. In fact, I want for you to write this down. There's an objective reality that human beings must submit to. That's what the doctrine of creation teaches us. There's a lot of confusion about this. Now, I want for you to notice this. Verse 1 in the scripture that we looked at, verse 1 says, in the beginning was the what? There was a beginning. And notice what it says. It says, in the beginning was the word, but there was a time, in the beginning was the word, and there was a time that through him, how many things were made? He made those things. He made what exists. All things. So you see, creation is real as opposed to pantheism. Here's the second thing I want to point out that's different from other worldviews, and that is that creation is good as opposed to the teaching of legalism. Write that down. It's good as opposed to the teaching of legalism. So somebody might say to me right now, well, pastor, you're awfully narrow. How narrow-minded of you, pastor, that you're saying all Eastern religions are wrong, and you might question that, and I understand that. I, I want you to know I'm speaking from a place of humility here. I'm, I'm not trying to be a know-it-all. You'd say to me, are you saying Western philosophy and Western religion is right? And to that, I just say, well, no. Because while in the East, the physical world is an illusion, in the West, the physical world is seen as bad. And this has crept into the church, too. Let me just give you some background. In Greco-Roman philosophy, in Greco-Roman religions, and in the Greco-Roman worldview from which many of our beliefs come, they basically understood that the spirit was good, but the flesh is bad. The physical is bad. The body is just a prisoner of the soul. So physical pleasure is bad. You know what's important? Self-denial. Therefore, you should deny yourselves. You should pummel your body. And that's the way you get spiritual enlightenment. You chastise yourself. Now, I'm going to say this view has also come down through the church. Let me just give you an example. Let's say you got a Christian. And there's a Christian who's trying to figure out God's will, right? How many of you have ever tried to figure out God's will? You've been praying, God, what do you want me to do? You want me to choose door number one or door number two? Who's been there? Come on, come on, come on, show me. Yeah, 
We, we all deal with that, right? You've got two things in front of you, and then right over here, you've got one thing that really hurts. This one way you can go, and it's the way of pain. And then you've got this other thing over here, and it's really easy, and it's really good. In fact, this door over here, you really want it. And you say to yourself, which one is God's will? Now, there are many Christians that are going to say, well, if you're spiritual, it's the one that hurts. It's the one that makes you miserable. God wants to take you through a trial. God wants to take you through different, and you just say, well, if you're spiritual, that has to be the will of God's way it is, right? Well, no, not necessarily. And I'm going to tell you, that's actually not the biblical view at all. In fact, what the Bible shows us about the physical is that God loves his creation. He enjoys his creation. He wants you to enjoy his creation. God actually takes pleasure in it. We're going to talk about that a little bit more. But I want for you to see that from the very beginning of creation, notice this. Notice in Genesis what it says as we put the scripture on the, on the, on the screen. It says, in the what? God did what? created. And I love Psalm 95 because notice how 95 puts it. It says, in his hand are all the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he what? And his hands formed the what? Now, what you see here is God with his hands in the dirt. You see God involved with his creation, forming things. Now, I'm going to tell you guys right now, the Greeks and the Romans in the West never would have believed this. You study all their creation myths, and they're utterly different. Either creation is just an accident, or it's a form of rebellion by some lesser gods. But you don't see God taking pleasure and creating. No, at the beginning, according to the biblical account, you've got God's hands in the dirt. He's working with creation. He's creating creation. He's creating creation out of creation. It's amazing. And then, what is so unique about the Christian faith is then you get to the middle of your Bible, the middle of history, and what you see, if you just write this down, it's so profound. What you see is God is so committed to the goodness of creation that he actually enters into it himself. He becomes creation. He becomes the uncreated chooses to become created. He loves it so much. Friends, you think that God doesn't love creation? Do you know what the Christian hope tells us? Do you know what good theology tells us? Not only does he love his creation, he intends to resurrect it. He intends to reform it. When we talk about the new heavens and the new earth, we're talking about the renovation of creation. You know, as an example, if you go to the book of Revelation, you, you just start reading it, you're going to start to see what paradise really is. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, only Christianity has this. Did you know that? If you're a student of world religions, do you know that Christianity is the only one place that has an actual physical paradise? The paradise of Scripture, the eternal kingdom of God, is a physical place. The Bible says it is a place where we're going to run and not be weary. How many of you hate to run? <laughs> Good news is you will run and not be weary. The Bible teaches that when we get to heaven, we're going to dance, we're going to hug, we're going to eat, and I'd like to believe calorie-free. <laughs> You'll find that in 1 Shane 5.18. Now, I want you to think about this. You say, well, why do you think we're going to eat? Well, I want you to think about this for a minute. Let me just, just look at the scripture. 
the resurrected Jesus, this is after he's died, this is after he rose again, and it says the resurrected Jesus, they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he what? Ate it right in front of him. Now, now you'd say, well, wait a minute. Why did he do that? Isn't that the resurrected Jesus? Isn't he spiritual now? Yeah. But here's my point. Friends, you've got to understand this. I get so excited, I want to dance right now. We're not even in heaven yet. You've got to understand Christianity in the best possible way, in the best use of the term, Christianity is the most materialistic of all religions. It teaches that creation is good, that the physical is something that God made, and it's not that the physical doesn't matter. Some people think, well, it's just what's going on inside me that matters. No, no, no. The physical does matter because God made it. He's behind it. It's how we set up the universe. Now, here's the third principle that I want for you to see. It's so fascinating about biblical creation. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, Sam, ready? Here we go. Ready. All right, I want you with me. Number three, write this down. The Bible teaches that creation is designed as opposed to the teaching of secularism. It's designed as opposed to the teaching of secularism. Now, here's why. Secularism will teach you that creation is an accident. It says that you're an accident. It says that I'm an accident. Isn't that encouraged? Encouraging? Secularism teaches that we are the result of unguided blind forces. In fact, Richard Dawkins, one of the most famous atheists alive today, in his book says that. We are the product of unguided blind forces. Now, let me ask you a question. If your brain is the result of unguided blind forces, why should you trust anything it actually tells you? If it's just random. And look, here's the big problem with secularism. And it's not the only problem with secularism, but it is a big problem. If you believe that you are not created by design, if you actually believe that you're an accident, then there's absolutely no way in the world that you should ever say something is right or something is wrong. For anybody, you cannot judge. You could never talk about justice and injustice if you believe you're an accident. Why? Well, because if you're just the result of an accident, if you're just the result of unguided blind forces, then there's no such thing as a good person or a bad person because upon what basis are you gonna judge goodness or badness? There's no design. You can't judge morality apart from knowing something's intended purpose. Now, I covered this, I don't know, six weeks ago or so with you in a different illustration, but if you handed me this iPhone, and let's say I'd never seen an iPhone, and you handed it to me and you said, oh, this is good, how am I to know if it's good? What if I didn't even know what an iPhone was? You hand it to me and you say this is good, and I'm going to go, oh, I don't know what it is. What do I use it for, to hammer and a nail? Now, I'm going to tell you, if this is used to hammer and a nail, it is not good. It sucks. <laughs> now, if I know its intended purpose, if I know what it's made for, then I might agree with you. Oh, yeah, I can see that this is good. But do you get my point? You can't have goodness or badness apart from knowing something's purpose. That's what theology is about. That's what doctrine is about. It's not about the how, it's about the why. It's about the who. 
But if you have no purpose, if you're made for no purpose, you absolutely mustn't say to somebody, well, that's bad. What makes it bad? If this people group destroys this people group, what makes that bad? It's good for them. Bad for them. See, it's all, it all turns into subjective, fluid nonsense. Write this down. Here's a point that's worth making. You and I only truly know the liberty of obedience or the freedom of obedience when we find the purpose for which we are created. And here's the point. The doctrine of creation says there is a purpose for your life, and we talk about the purposes all the time around here. It says that you were made and that you were designed. Can I just press this a little bit more? Let me just ask you a rhetorical question here. Think about it, though. Is a fish free? Ready? And that sounds silly, right? Here we go. Is a fish free when the fish is out of the water? Is it? No, it's not. A fish is only free to die when it's out of the water. And the fish may not want to die, but it's going to die. It's not even free to choose. Why? Because the fish is designed for what? Water. It's not free. You are only free when you understand what you're designed for. And it's within that design that you are free. Now, the problem with American society today, especially in North America, is we're choosing our own design. We're deciding we are going to be the master of our own life. We're going to choose what we want, how we want, when we want it. That's the epitome of sin. Do you see? So I say it again. You only know the liberty of obedience when you find the purpose for which you were created. All right, number four, write this down. Here's something else about creation that we've got to get doctrinally. Creation is finite as opposed to the teaching of paganism. See, there's a fourth kind of view of things here. So let me just review with you. Can I do that for a second? Go back to pantheism. Pantheism, what does it do? Pantheism just kind of ignores creation. Legalism, what does legalism do? Legalism basically is afraid of creation, the physical, and disdains it. What does secularism do? Secularism exploits it. Hey, I can do what I want. It's all up to me. There's no design here. But paganism... Paganism is interesting because paganism worships creation. Where does that come from? Paganism is the religion of old Europe before Christianity came. It's the religion of witchcraft. And it has a very positive view of nature, by the way, but there are way too many positives. They hold creation too high. By the way, if you want to study the most common American trend in paganism, just study New Age theology. You want to crash course on it? Go to Cambria and look in a lot of the shops there. You're going to see a lot of shops devoted to these ideas. It talks about these incredible energies, and it talks about the spirit of the mountain, and it talks about the spirit of the water and the spirit of the trees, and it seeks to tap into those spirits or those energies. You ever hear people, people use this language all the time. They have a really good energy about them. Now, here's the danger, and I want for you to write this down. It's really important. What Scripture warns about this is, if you just write this next point down, when you don't look behind the created to the Creator, your heart will begin to rest in the created. And you know what the Bible calls that when your heart begins to rest in the created? That's called idolatry. That's called false worship. 
and you begin to make other things an idol, and God says, you're not to have idols. You're not to trust in the created, you're to trust in me. You know what C.S. Lewis says, and by the way, he's perfectly right in saying this to this point. He says, you know, the books of the music we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust them because it was not in them. It only came through them, and what came through them, it says, was a longing. Now, if they, the created things, are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. Now, watch this. This is powerful. I love C.S. Lewis. He says, for, the, for they are not the thing itself. They are only a scent of the flower we have not found. They are only the echo of a tune we have not heard. They are only news from a country we have never visited. Now, do you guys realize what he's saying here? He's saying, look, if you place your faith in created things, if you look to created things for your meaning, your help, your comfort, your satisfaction, he's saying ultimately it's going to break your heart because that's not really what you're looking for. You think it's what you're looking for, but it's not. Why? Well, let's go back to John 1. John 1 says, where is life found? In him. Is life found in it? No. Life is found in him, do you see? So, don't exploit it like the secularist might. Don't ignore it like the pantheist might. Don't fear it or despise it like the legalist might. And definitely don't worship it like the pagans will. You know, don't live for things. How do you treat creation? All right, here we go. How do you practically live it out? What does it mean for me? You guys ready? All right, here we go. Write this down. Here's the first step as a Christian. Number one, you're committed to creation. Now, not in the worship sense, but what I mean is with a sense of stewardship. In other words, we say, God, all I have is yours. God, everything I own is yours. By the way, this is why we give back to God from what he gives us because there's no better way to practice God at yours than saying I release it back to you as an act of faith and trust. And what else do we do? We take care of what he's given us. We're responsible for it. By the way, everything you see, go ahead and look around. Look at the people seated right around you. Ready, set, go. Go ahead. Just look at them. Do you realize they're all created by God, every person you see? By the way, this is why we shouldn't treat people unfairly or unjustly or lie to them or mistreat other human beings because they are made in the image of God. So we treat human beings well. All creation is God's. Friends, look at your hands. Would you just do me that favor? Just look at your hands. Just look at them with me. Those are God's. Do you know that? What do you do with these hands that are God's? What have you done with these things that are God's? This is why God hates perversion, by the way. Somebody says, well, it's my body. I'll do with my body what I want. Oh, no, it isn't. It is not your body, and one day you're going to give an account to God for how you used it. God says, it's my body. Now, friends, listen. I'm convinced if we thought of creation like this, not only would we would be responsible for creation, but we would enjoy creation more than we do. Think about how much Jesus enjoyed creation. Look at Jesus the Christ. In fact, if you go ahead one chapter, read John chapter one, and then read John chapter two, well, what did 
Jesus do for his first miracle? Now, you remember, this is his first miracle. So it has to be big, right? It has to be significant. Because when you open a campaign, you've got to make sure the first thing that you do is symbolic. It's going to announce who you are. It's going to announce what you're about. You get what I'm saying. Jesus' first miracle, it's not a peripheral thing. It's central. So what does Jesus do in his very first miracle? It says he took water and he turned it into what? Wine. Why would he do that? Why did Jesus choose in his very first miracle to turn water into wine? What do you think? Was it to raise the party to new heights? (laughs) And if it was to raise the party to new heights... Would you think it unworthy? Is that a worthy use of the creator's power? See, here's what I think. I think when Jesus turned the water into wine, what he was saying is, I am the master of physical laws. I am the master of creation. You don't have the power of positive thinking to turn water into wine. Just try it. Go read Norman Vincent Peale's book and then try it, I dare you. You don't have the power to do it. Only the creator could do that. And what he's saying is, I am the master of creation. And what does God do with his power? (laughs) When he turns water into wine, what does the creator do? His first miracle, he gets you to enjoy it. He throws a party. Now, it really does lead, if you think about this, to the second point, that you're not only committed to creation, to be responsible for creation, but he says, you need to enjoy creation. Write that down. You should be enjoyers of creation. Write that down. I could enjoy creation. Why? Let me give you the biggest biblical ethic. It is phenomenal. Listen to this. It's because God created creation out of his joy. Do you know that? God created out of his own pleasure. You've got to understand this. Friends, about the doctrine of creation, listen to me. God is not just this big being floating in space that one day said, I will now create. No. How does John put it? Go to that scripture again for me, would you? This, this John. John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was what? With God and the Word was God. By the way, the word in Scripture, the Greek is logos. Do you know what logos means? It means the rationale for life or the meaning for life. So in the beginning was the meaning of all life. It's not the how, it's the why, it's the who, it's the meaning. You follow me? In the beginning was the logos and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Now what is it with this word with? With is a relational word. With is a word of intimacy in the Greek, and it says, and this word was God, but with, meaning they created the world together, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does withness mean? Listen to me. Withness means love. I'm with. Withness means joy. Withness means communication. In fact, if you go all the way down, go to verse 18 for me and pull that up for them next It says, God, but God the one and only who is at the 
father's side, speaking of Jesus. By the way, if you read this in a literal translation, like a New American Standard Bible or maybe the ESV, King James, the translation is the son was in the bosom of the father or the father was in the bosom of the son. Why? Why did that matter? Because the bosom is the most intimate of places. What they're saying is they had rapture. They had intimacy. They were complete in themselves. Think about it. They... The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, they were pouring love and joy completely back and forth into one another's hearts, and then they decided, hey, let's make some others. Let's create some others so they can be part of our circle. Let's get some others so that they can experience the same joy we're experiencing. That's the idea here in John. Friends, you know what I'm saying? You see the implication of this? Listen to me got to get this. The things today that you call physical pleasures, physical pleasures are just a faint, far-off result of the energies of God who created everything out of total pleasure. The morning air you breathe, what do I mean? The morning air you breathe, when you breathe in that morning air early in the morning, if you get up early in the morning, who does that? All right. If you get up early in the morning and you walk out and you breathe it in, you're like, wow, that's good. Or the sunset that you watch and you say, whoa, that's magnificent. Have you ever been to a camp out and you're sleeping under the stars and you looked up and the stars were bigger than you've ever seen them before? Who's done that? All its pleasure is just a faint whisper of the pleasure of God when he created. We're experiencing something of what God is. Friends, you don't believe me? What do you think heaven's going to be like? You know what I think? I think that if Christians, knowing where creation comes from, Christians, Christians should be the most playful kind of people. (laughs) Christians are the people who more than anybody else should enjoy a sunset. Christians are the people who should enjoy good music. Christians are the people who should enjoy a good meal. And everybody said amen. But why? Why should we enjoy it more than anybody else? Why? I'll tell you why. It's because it's not just to say that, oh, that thing is good, but it's to know the glory that it points to. To know the one from whom it comes, there is no greater joy than that. Why? Because all pleasure points to the ultimate pleasure. And it's not just as a Christian that you're committed to creation. It's not just that you can enjoy creation. But the biblical ethic of creation, ultimately, how it trickles down is this. Write this down. Is that God says you're to be a redeemer of creation. Or a rebuilder of creation. What do I mean? I mean that all Scripture says, including you and me, that everything is under the curse of sin. Why? Because we perverted creation. We wanted it to go our way for us. And God says that's the essence of sin, each one going into their own way, choosing for themselves. And God says, now I'm trying to redeem it, and you're meant to be my hands and feet. We are part of putting it right. Why? Well, how does Paul put it? He says, everything is from God. How much? Everything. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ, but he gave us something. What did he give us? We're meant to be a part of this thing. 
How important is it that you're a part of this thing? Before I read those final scriptures there, write down this final thought because it's so important not to forget that, well, God's so committed to it that he sent his son into it. You know, guys, this, this point is so profound to me. This morning I was reading in Psalm 19, and this is the scripture that's been on my heart more than any. Let's read this together. This is a powerful thing. Ready? Here we go. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. You realize what this is saying? This is saying, <laughs> this is saying that the heavens, everything the sun, the moon, the stars, everything declares the glory of God. Everything you see in nature is meant to reflect his glory in some way. Do you know that? Here's my question for you. Do you think about your life, think about how you live, do you as his creation reflect the glory of God? Betty Elliot one of my heroes, she used to put it this way. I always laugh when I think of this quote. She used to say, you know, clams glorify God better than some people. <laughs> Why? She said it's because a clam is exactly what God meant it to be, but so many people are not. There are so many people today that are running from God, each one into their own way, and they're looking to everything created. I mean, they're literally living in paganism. They're looking to everything created for meaning and satisfaction, looking to define their reality and their identity and their worth. And, and it, our culture is utterly confused. Friends, listen to me. What did it cost God to make you right? His creation with himself? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word, Jesus, the Logos, the rationale for all life was where? And he had to leave it for you. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit with all their tremendous love. And you look at verse 18 and you see how much it was. Because in verse 18 it says the Son was literally in the most intimate place. He was in the bosom of the Father. What is it? Total perfection, total completion. It's the perfect relationship. Do you know what it means that Jesus Christ was willing to give that up for you? And on the cross, do you remember what he said when he was hanging on the cross? The Logos? Look at this scripture. He says, Eloi, Eloi lame sabachthani. It means, let's read it together. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? What does that mean? What does that mean? Well, Philippians 2 puts it this way. It says, instead he, what? Emptied himself. Emptied himself of what? What did he empty himself of? What does it mean that the Father forsook him? Guys, you've got to get this. Maybe you've never gotten this before, but this is the gospel. Are you ready? Your creator was willing to be uncreated so that you could be recreated. Let me say that again. 
Your creator was willing to be uncreated so that you could be recreated. And until that moves you, you will never get it. You will never understand life. You will never have fulfillment in life. You will never know what it means. Today is a baptism Sunday, which means we'd love to baptize you. You know what baptism is all about? It means that Jesus was uncreated to raise you into a new creation, to give you new life. It means that you acknowledge, you know what, God, you're my creator, you're my everything. And so because of that, like you, I'm dying to something I was to be recreated into something new, something awesome. You know, baptism is the most humble of acts. Did you know that? Because it's a physical display of complete and total surrender. I think some of you should get baptized today as a way to say, Jesus, I surrender to you. Let's pray. Would you do me this favor? Just pray this prayer with me, everybody together. Just pray this prayer with me. Here we go. Father, I'm ready to be recreated. You are my maker. You give me my identity. You are my very worth. Let me be the person you created me to be. Forgive me of my sin. I turn to you. I repent. I've messed up. I've missed the mark. That's why I need you. Thank you for being my Savior. Thank you for taking the punishment that was mine and giving me life. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me just pray for you now. Father, bless each one that prayed that prayer from their heart. The same, you are the same God that spoke things into existence. I pray you'd speak words of life into people that would recreate something. What, what Paul called regeneration, what you called being born again, that you would do something profound and real in the lives of people here don't understand it. I don't understand the foolishness of preaching the gospel. But your word says that you change people through it. So would you do that? God, we love you. We give you glory. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.